Well, good day, everyone. My name is Holger Neubauer. I'm the preacher of the Church of Christ at Lakeshore in South Haven, Michigan. And today I want to talk to you about something that was written about me on a website entitled Scripture Interpreting Scripture. I wasn't aware that my name had been called and a portion of their website dedicated to me personally. And I tried to find out just who did the writing and the articles were not signed, which I find troubling. If you're going to accuse an individual of false teaching, at least put your name on the article in order that I can respond directly to the individual who is making the accusation. Now, this website entitled Scripture Interpreting Scripture quotes me from a debate that I had with Bruce Reeves in 2020 in Amarillo, Texas. And they take issue, of course, with the position of fulfillment, but they take issue in particular a statement that I made in the midst of the debate where I said that when a New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament text, that they always quote in context. And they don't make up new meanings, but they fulfill the meanings of these Old Testament texts. Well, they write whoever they are, and my suspicion is that they are with Bruce Rees, probably Kyle Pope and Jeff Asher and Sean Cavender and McLean and whoever are else uh, you know associated with these guys. They represent the extreme right wing of Churches of Christ. I'll not get into their doctrines, but some of it is ludicrous. And they say a New Testament writer does not always quote in the context of the Old Testament text and try to give examples of such. So let's wrap our minds around what they're trying to say. I'm affirming that the Old Testament text has a text. It has a context. And just as we are not at liberty to take a New Testament text out of its context and make some nefarious non-biblical application out of the text, I affirm that the New Testament writers and Jesus himself was not at liberty to do anything with the scriptures because the scriptures pointed to Christ. In John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus said, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The scriptures pointed to Christ. And in Acts chapter 3 and verse 24, we find that Peter, by inspiration, says that Samuel and all the prophets that follow after or follow Samuel foretold these days. And Peter was speaking about the days of the last days of old coveted Israel, in which the heavens would perceive. Christ until the restitution of all things. And he wasn't talking about the day of Pentecost. He was talking about his second coming. 
And so we find that inspiration tells us that the prophets foretold about the last days of Israel. Now, when a New Testament writer quotes from an Old Testament text, I affirm, without any equivocation, they always quote from a text. And just as we are not at liberty to take a New Testament text out of its context, which many individuals do regularly, they were not at liberty to take an Old Testament text out of its context, which they say that they did. That's ridiculous. Now, when an Old Testament text is cited, there is either a direct prophecy or the text represents a type. Now, see, many times the Old Testament texts are cited because they represent an event which foreshadows something that would take place later during the last days. Not our last days, their last days, 80-30 to 80-70, the last days of Israel. And again, Peter said that Samuel and all the prophets that follow after have foretold these days. What days? The last days of Israel. All of them spoke about that transition period from AD 30 to AD 70 concerning the ministry of Jesus. So when you have Moses making a prediction in Deuteronomy 18 that God would raise up a prophet like unto me and him you will hear and he who does not hear this man will be destroyed among the people we know that that text of course points to Christ and so we should be looking for similarities between Moses and Christ well they were both lawgivers Moses gave the Old Testament law Jesus gives the New Testament law they both established memorials Moses the Passover, Jesus the Lord's Supper. They both had 70 helpers. We find that Jesus sent out the 70. They both contended with masters of evil, the controlled an evil empire, Pharaoh in Egypt, and Jesus and the high priest, who is the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, and he's the 666 man and I have a little pamphlet which I've written about the high priest being the 666 man. The six is a temple number. I'm glad to see some guys in fulfillment finally coming on board and seeing that. It's not Nero, it's the high priest. And so Moses is a type of Christ. Well, they were both preserved in their childhood and they both led their people out of Egypt. So in Exodus 4, 22 and 23, through Moses, God calls his people out of Egypt. Well, Jesus will do the same thing. He will call his people out of Egypt, and he will be identified as the one who is going to do it by Matthew. In Matthew 2, 15, Quoting from Hosea 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Matthew applies that text to Christ. The authors of the website say there's no connection whatsoever in the context. Oh, oh. 
All the prophets that follow after have prophesied of these days, what days? The last days of Israel, including the book of Hosea. Hosea 1.11, he would gather again Israel and Judah. There would be one head. I've already dealt with the voice of Hosea. Hosea was supposed to marry Gomer, a prostitute who temporarily reforms, but she goes back to her old ways, and the prophet doesn't even know if the children are his. And yet we find that one day, in the last days, they would be gathered together under one head. So as Hosea deals with a 40-year period, 760 to 720 B.C., Hosea also looks forward to another period like that, another 40-year period in which there would be great, great evil. And yet, at the end of the 40-year period, something dramatic would take place. And through a three-day resurrection, Hosea 6.2, Hades would be overcome. And the Messiah would then call his people out of Egypt. You see, in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8, there's a city which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. That's not Rome, that's Jerusalem. And that's the great city that was destroyed at the second coming of Christ. That's the one hour, Revelation 18.8. The one day, Revelation 18.10. And then we find in Revelation 18.4, uh, the, uh, John says, come out of her. Who? Come out of Babylon the Great. Who's Babylon the Great? The city which was spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Come out of her. I called my son out of Egypt. They were being called out of Egypt, you see. And so you can have a, an Old Testament text which sets forth a type with different applications but because Peter said that all the prophets are foretold of these days, I look for the type of the last days of Israel in the book of Hosea. And that's what that's about. That's why Paul quotes from Hosea in 1 Corinthians 15, 4. After two days, he will revive us, and the third day he will raise us up. Through a resurrection of the Messiah who is coming. And then he quotes from Hosea 13, 14 and 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Death, where is your sting? Right? Death, where is your sting? Uh, oh, Hades, where is your victory? He's quoting from Hosea 13, 14. Because through this 40-year transition, that Hadean world would be overcome. That's why Paul quotes from the book of Hosea in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, our authors of Scripture interpreting Scripture tell us that there is no connection. That we wouldn't know there was a connection unless there was a direct statement in the New Testament that was applied by inspiration. So the question is, should any of the Jews at the time of Christ been able to see that the scriptures pointed to Jesus? Could they have? Should they have? Of course they should. The scriptures pointed to Jesus. 
And Peter said that all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after have foretold these days. What days? The last days of Israel. When Peter on the day of Pentecost says, save yourself from this untoward generation, he is affirming that the generation that Moses had predicted they were now living in. And that's why they sold their goods, because within a 40-year period, the land would be emptied and be destroyed, their temple destroyed, and all of their physical uh, connections to the land would have been over. Now, you see, the Old Testament has a context, and the New Testament writers always quote in context, either as a type, or a direct prophecy, one of the two. And for someone to say that they don't do that is an egregious wrong. Really. That Jesus can make up willy-nilly some new meaning that there's no connection with. That's ridiculous. That's wrong-headed, that's biased, and that demonstrates the desperation that these guys are going to to refute what we are saying, and particularly what I've said in, in debate with Bruce Reeves. The Bible teaches that the Old Testament is a type, the law having a shadow of good things to come. It's not my fault that they haven't recognized the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. The feast days were a type, which are a shadow of good things to come. Colossians 2 and verse 17. Of course the Old Testament sets forward the type and the shadow. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6. <clears throat> the wilderness wandering is a type. The Greek word tupikos. Tupikos in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. All these things happen for examples, types. So I know the wilderness wandering is a type. The 40-year transition is a type. It's a type of the last days of Israel, the second exodus period. I will call my son out of Egypt. That's the idea. And so when I go to Joshua chapter 5 and I find that after the transition of the 40 years, the manna ceases, I know that's a type of the spiritual gifts coming to an end. And when he says, I will roll away the approach of Egypt in Joshua 5 verse 9, I know that's a type of what God did to fulfill Romans 11, 27, when I take away their sins. When? When all of the stones of the altars are like chalk stones, by this the iniquity of Jacob is taken away. By this their sins are covered. I'll make all the altars like chalk stones, beaten into dust. Wooden images and incense altars would not stand and the fortified city would be made desolate. What fortified city made desolate? city of Jerusalem. And in that day, that temple would never be rebuilt. Isaiah 25, verse 2. And it hasn't, and it won't. Isaiah 24 through 28 through 29, really, the little apocalypse, all talking about that last generation of Jews upon the earth. It's not my fault that they haven't read their scriptures clearly enough in order to see that the Old Testament either contains the type or the direct prophecy of what was going to take place. Now, because they cite Bruce Reeves, I'm going to go into what Bruce Reeves and these guys have said. My presumption is that the group of brethren surrounding Bruce Reeves at his debate, his debate team, came up with this website. 
they don't want you to know it's them, and so they they want to kind of hide behind uh, an open investigation of Bible teaching. They don't want you to to know who they are, so they don't identify themselves. They just want you to be hooked in uh, to their uh, teachings. But in debate with Bruce Reeves, I argued that Zechariah chapter 14 was about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. He denied that. He argued that it was about the day of Pentecost. And Zechariah 13.1 was about the day of Pentecost because that's the party line. That's what I learned as a preacher in Churches of Christ. Because of Zechariah chapter 14 verse 8, And that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem. Also, Zechariah 13, 1, the same day, and that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and uncleanness. He's not talking about the day of Pentecost. He's talking about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 is about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. When Jesus said, but at that day and that hour knows no one, he's quoting in context. He's quoting from Zechariah 14.7, a day known to the Lord. And this is when Jesus is coming, a day known to the Lord, in which the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, his name one. This is the revelation of Jesus, the revealing of Christ. And he is revealed when the physical city of Jerusalem is taken and destroyed. When Jesus said, one taken, one left, and later on in verse 16, it shall come to pass that everyone who is left, those who are left are those who are spared. The ones who are taken are off into captivity, they're killed. That's how the Old Testament prophets use these terms. And the idiom that Jesus uses in Luke 17 is not talking about a rapture at the end of time. One taken, one left. Bruce Reeves said, well, the second coming of Christ will be supernatural. I said that Bruce Reeves believes that the greatest miracle could take place at any time. And he does. He's really a closet Pentecostal preacher. Because he believes that a miracle could take place at any day. Today. The greatest miracle of all time could take place. No. The miracles were for 40 years. There's no miracle in your future. And he says, well, it would be supernatural. Something that is supernatural... It's not necessarily miraculous. All miracles are supernatural, but not all things which are supernatural are miraculous. Right? The word supernatural comes from a Latin term, supra, which means beyond nature. Okay? That's what it means, beyond nature. So, you're praying for your family to be safe, all right? Maybe your grandkids are going home. You know, they visited you. We have some grandkids in St. Louis and in Tennessee, in uh, outside of uh, Taft, Tennessee. So we pray for them, all right? So nature's laws are that if you go down the road and... You know, they hit a tree, so to speak, you know, nature's laws, you know, they're going to have an accident, all right? Now, when you pray for your family's safety, are you only asking them to be aware of nature's laws? 
Or do you believe that somehow that God superintends that there is the interruption of this natural law, but not to the extent that it's discernible. It's behind the scenes, you see. We pray for healing, the same kind of a thing. And when you're praying for your family to be safe, you want them to be safe, but there's more to the story. You're asking for God's blessings. So that's supernatural. But it's not miraculous. A miracle is when you interrupt the natural law to the extent that God proves he did it. That's the distinction. And Bruce Reeves and his crew didn't see that. And that's terrible. Because prayer and providence are supernatural. We have God affecting our lives. They say through the natural law. Well, then the natural law has to be bent if he's going to use the natural law. Which means that you have a different outcome with prayer than you would without prayer. Which means that the natural law has to be somehow guided by God. And yet not to the extent that he interrupts it and everybody sees that the event must have been by God. And that's what a miracle is. But he believes in the greatest miracle of all time that could take place at any time. And that's false. Now, Zechariah chapter 13 which is, of course, between Zechariah 12 and 14, speaks about the end of the spiritual gifts. Remember the type in Joshua chapter 5. Well, the same thing here. We find in the day that there is a fountain open for sin and uncleanness is the day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. He will say, I am no prophet, I am a farmer. The prophetic office comes to an end, just like in Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27. He will fill up vision and prophecy. <clears throat> Excuse me, just like the type in Joshua chapter 5, the man ceases after the 40-year uh, transition. And then Joshua meets the Lord, and he worships the man that reveals himself to Joshua. That's the type. Well, here's the direct prophecy. <clears throat> And he's not talking about the day of Pentecost. In Zechariah 12, 2, <coughs> excuse me, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the uh, surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. When was Judah and Jerusalem lay siege? Excuse me. <coughs> When were when were, when was Judah and Jerusalem laid siege? Did Jesus say, "When you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know its desolation is near"? These are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Those in Judea flee to the mountains. If you're in the uh, the city, you have to leave. If you're in the country, you don't enter her. These be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written might be fulfilled. That's not this. Of course it is. Of course it is. You simply have to be arrogant to resist it. Stubborn. Okay? Zechariah 12.2. Now, I want you to notice something here <clears throat> about the application of Scripture. Verse 10. I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me whom they pierced, 
Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And that day of great mourning in Jerusalem. All right, so the city is besieged. Earlier, the prophet said it's going to be a fry pan. Okay, it's going to be a time of great judgment, and a fiery judgment is going to come upon the city. That's the idea. And in that day, there's a great mourning. All right, here are the tribes of the earth are mourning. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, and verse 30, says all the tribes of the earth shall mourn. He's talking about the tribes of the land. And Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience in Matthew chapter 24. He is describing the fall of the temple. And by the way, I've gotten a new book, verse by verse, uh, Exegesis of Matthew 24 and 25. Get it on Amazon, okay? but of that day and hour. And I absolutely demonstrate that the Olivet Discourse is not divided. And if it's not divided, the rest of the writers of the New Testament could not be talking about another coming because their source of the coming of Christ is the Olivet Discourse. And it's not divided. And in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30, we find that Jesus says all the tribes of the earth would mourn. And now they would see the sign of the coming of the Son of Man who was in heaven. So notice what is said, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. All right. Well, we know that Matthew and Mark and Luke all contain the Olivet Discourse. John does not contain the Olivet Discourse because the book of Revelation is his Olivet Discourse. It was shortly to take place. It was at hand. And in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, we find that he's coming in the clouds and all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn. Now notice, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth or the land will mourn because of him. This is a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and Matthew 24, verse 30. Now, let's put their argument against them. They say, unless you have a specific citation that says this is the fulfillment of that, you can't know what the text is teaching. All right? They cite 2 Peter 1, 19, 20, and 21, that no prophecy is given by any private interpretation holy men of God, they were uh, moved by the Holy Spirit. Well, the idea is, is that when a prophet gave a prophecy, it wasn't his personal prophecy. God was moving in these old world prophets. So, the idea is not that we can't understand a prophetic test unless the Bible specifically says that's what it means. That's not the idea. It is to recognize that we have a sure word of prophecy. That is, the New Testament is even more sure than the Old Testament. Though both are sure. That's the idea of 2 Peter 1, 19-21. And now notice now, please, in Revelation 1, 7, Behold, he's coming on the clouds, every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Now, if we need 
a direct link to Scripture to know what this Scripture is about, then how would they know this is about their future? Where is the Scripture in the Old Testament that teaches about this text in their future? Well, it doesn't, you see. Zechariah 12 is about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Now again, notice what they say. They say, in order to understand prophecy, and they say all prophecy is God's, therefore the interpretation is God's. Therefore you have to let God interpret God. Scripture interprets Scripture, right? Okay. Well, is the book of Revelation in their future? Then how could they know what it means? You need another divine book to interpret this divine book. It's a contradiction. But if the scriptures in the New Testament are the fulfillment of the Old, even the book of Revelation, then the scriptures are connected, you see, which they deny. They say they're not connected, but they have to be connected. <laughs> they contradict themselves coming and going. All right? So Zechariah 12.10 has also an application in John chapter 9, uh, 19 and 37 on the cross. He's pierced. They would see him, which sets forth the stage, you see, for the scripture to be fulfilled. And now it's fulfilled when every side will. I would see him. They also say that there is something called dual fulfillment. That's ridiculous. It's a philosophical impossibility that there could be a dual fulfillment to anything. All right. Now you might have a double entendre, trizo entendre, which simply means a double meaning. Okay, fine. You can have a type, you can have an antitype. You can have a different application of first application of second application, but you can have only one fulfillment. The word fulfill means to bring to a completion. All right? If you fulfill the terms of your mortgage, you pay that off. You fulfilled your obligation. The bank can't come back and say, well, now it has to be fulfilled again. If you fulfill it, you fulfill it. It's dishonest to say now you have to fulfill it again. Mm -mm. There's no such thing as a double fulfillment. That's made up in the minds of commentators because they don't understand what's going on in the text. You can have a primary application, a secondary application, but you can have only one fulfillment. And Peter said in Acts 3.24 that Samuel and all the prophets that follow after have foretold these days, the last days of Israel. And Revelation 1.7 is the fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. But Zechariah 12.10 is in the context of Judah and Jerusalem being besieged. And in that day when the nations gather against Jerusalem, Zechariah 14 verse 2, the houses will be rifled and the women are ravished. Now in debate, Bruce Reeves and his team, I think they kind of studied together. I don't know when he borrowed from his debaters' ideas, but he, he borrowed from them way too much. You could tell that in the debate. 
didn't know what he was talking about on many, many occasions. In Zechariah chapter 14, he says this was persecution. First, he said it's not all taking place on the day of Pentecost. All right, so it's fulfilled after Pentecost. That's my argument. It's fulfilled at the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. He's talking about that event. All right. Now, the city shall be taken, one taken, one left. The houses rifled, that's a consequence of national civil war, and the women ravished. The women are raped. The same language is used when the Medes came into Babylon in 539 B.C. in Isaiah 13, 16. Same language. It's the unfortunate consequences of national war. Today, sadly, there are women being raped in the Ukraine by Russian soldiers. They take advantage of them. There was one news report, an old lady, it was so sad, she must have been in her 70s. And some Russian soldier doesn't believe in God, believes that he'll take advantage of any situation he wants, rapes the woman. And she was screaming. She said, I'm old enough to be your mother. She tells the whole story. It's horrid. All right? It's a consequence of war. Bruce Reeves said this was persecution. And in the same debate, he said persecution can be a good thing. Well, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. If this rape equals persecution, and persecution can be a good thing, then rape can be a good thing. That's the consequence of his doctrine. And that's not good business. And they say that I was somehow out of sorts when I said that. They're the ones that said Zechariah chapter 14 is the destruction, or is the day of Pentecost. They're the ones that said that. And then you put this nonsense, scripture inter interpreting scripture, website up there, where they don't sign their names and they call my name and said, Preterists would do well to take heed to the idea that you can't know what the scriptures mean unless God specifically says that that is the fulfillment of this. And yet in the book of Revelation, sometimes there are three and four scriptures in one verse. There are about 500 scriptures being fulfilled in the book of Revelation. And since it's in their future, consistently they couldn't know what it, what it says. Look, Zechariah 14 is about the second coming of Christ. It's national judgment. The houses rifled, the women ravished. It's exactly the same language of Isaiah 13, 16. Look at Lamentations 5 and verse 11. Again, the consequences of national civil law. It's what it is. In that day, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. You remember in Revelation 19:15, He would smite the nations with the rod coming out of His mouth. It's the picture of the gospel becoming a universal standard of judgment for all of mankind. The kingdom had transitioned. And the day known to the Lord had come to pass. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, which neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall be light. That it will be light in that day. It shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem. This is Zechariah 13.1 as well. But this is Revelation 7.17, which is the end of the second coming, where the Lamb will lead them to everlasting uh, 
waters to quench their thirst. It's the same thing of Revelation 7, 17. You see, it's the same picture of Joshua chapter 5, verse 9, the type. He rolls away the reproach of Egypt. Because now, as the forgiveness of sins was promised through the earnest, the down payment of the Holy Spirit, now it's actually experienced. That's why heaven is opened. That's why the resurrection took place then, because of the forgiveness of sins. You see, just as the type demands in Joshua chapter 5, just as Romans 11.27 is citing from Isaiah chapter 27, 9 through 11, and Isaiah 59.22, you see. And the one taken, one left in Zechariah chapter 14. And Jesus is using the language as the prophets did, are used exactly the opposite in the way that modern interpreters look at what Jesus says in Luke 17 and Matthew 24. One taken, they think you're raptured up. You're left here to suffer. Now it's the other way around. Taken means taken into judgment, one left. The idiom means one spared. Noah was spared. He was left. Lot was spared. He was left, you see. I'll get to Amos next time. Let's review what we've studied. Do the New Testament writers always quote in context? Of course they do. Either as a type or a prophecy. It's not my fault that they can't understand the types and the shadows and the last days of Old Covenant Israel from A.D. 30 to A.D. 70. They don't have a clue, any more than a man on the moon. Do we have to have a specific uh, sighting in order to know a prophecy has come true? Does it have to specifically say that in the Bible for us to know it? No. No. Because the Bible doesn't specifically say that. It's a made-up rule. And they can't know what the book of Revelation is about. Because that's a prophecy in their future. Where's the divine commentary on it? You see, it's inconsistent. They haven't thought about that. And if a prophecy cannot be understood until it's written down, then how are the Jews? How are the Jews accountable? And if the Old Testament didn't teach in a particular context, how are they responsible? How are they responsible for following the New Covenant world? Unless that from the scriptures you could teach that they're all being fulfilled. And that's what Paul does in Acts 28-23. From morning till evening, he argues from the law and the prophets, you see. And the inspired gift that he had did not discount his personal study. And today, we have these things revealed. You see, the Old Testament is revealed. The New Testament is revealed. We can compare the covenants. We can see the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old. It's the hand and the glove. And not one jot or tittle of the law or the prophets could fail to be, until it was all fulfilled. The law and the prophets go hand in hand together. And all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, Acts 3.24, foretold the last days of Israel. And in that context, Jesus was received of the heavens until the restitution of all things to complete the covenant in a 40-year period, exactly as Joshua chapter 5 teaches in Dike. 
This website, Scripture Interpreting Scripture, is awful. It is wrong. It is false. And let them put their name on their articles if they're going to call me a false teacher. Have a little bit of decency and courage, please. And give up this false doctrine of a future coming of Christ in which a great miracle could take place at any moment. They're really like a Joel Olstein and some of these Pentecostal preachers. A miracle can happen today. They're false teachers. Every one of them. And within this next generation, we're going to root this idea out. And we're going to teach the truth to the church. And we have more and more brethren coming on. But it's brethren like them that resist the truth. Well, that's enough for today. Uh, I don't often try to get off my game, so to speak, and get into these things, but sometimes you just have to spend time in utter refutation of the casuistry and ridiculousness of brethren who deal underhandedly, who say things and then retract things, and then say, you say these things, when in fact I said that the Old Testament serves as a type and a prophecy. And the Old Testament always has a context. And they are wrong and need to, need, need to change their minds. Kyle Pope said um, when we were leaving the debate, hope you change your minds. Well, we already did. We already did, Kyle. We hope you change your minds too. There's only two classes of individuals that never change their minds. Fools because they won't, dead men because they can't, and I choose to be in neither of the categories. Someone from that camp wants to debate me on these things, let them do it. I'm ready to go.